You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello, I'm Maisha Kai, host of the Griot's Writing Black Podcast. In West African tradition, to be a griot is to be a storyteller, one who carries and communicates the experiences and legacies of a people. As the Griot's lifestyle editor, I've always been fascinated by how we tell our stories. That's why we launched Writing Black, to explore the myriad ways Black writers craft stories and communicate our experiences. Thank you for joining us. Here's an excerpt from this week's guest. Misty is the living room couch named after my favorite dancer, Misty Copeland. When we aren't doing pirouettes before dance class, we play I Spy and laugh at our silly answers. Misty loves to dance, and I know she loves me. She's comfortable and graceful. That's what makes her a super seat. This week, we have somebody very exciting with us. She is an actress, an author, a journalist, a screenwriter, and a disability rights advocate. Kia Brown, welcome to Writing Black. Thank you for having me. I was so excited when you reached out. I was like, yes, I'm pumped. Let's do this. (laughs) Well, I was excited to have you. You um, are back with a new book. Uh, This is not your first book, and we're going to get into that. But you were back with a new book for kids called Sam's Super Seats. Um, which, you know, we were talking about this before uh, you joined us today. My producer and I were talking about this, that, you know, we look, we really kind of overlook, you know, what's missing in the, in the children's book space. Right. Mm -hmm. And particularly when it comes to narratives, including children with disabilities, it's like, you know, if, if that's not part of your daily reality, are you missing that? Are you thinking about it? Um, And this is a book, um, where the the heroine, just like you, has cerebral palsy, yes. and her name is Sam, and she has a series of super seats. What was the, um, you know, obviously there's your own life story, but um, what what made you want to write a book like this now? I just kept thinking, like, what was the book that I wish I had when I was younger? I was, mm-hmm. like, very laser-focused on the idea of teaching kids about rest and the importance of listening to your body and letting mm. rest be an adventure. So what happened was my editor, Sydney Monday, shout out to her, she read The Pretty One, which was my first book, but we'll get into later. And she really liked my essay on chairs. Now, all my life, I have been giving chairs names and personality traits and, you know, just thoughts and ideas because I spend so much time sitting down and resting my body. And I thought, why not do that for kids? Why not give, you know, create this character who has super seats that make her feel comfortable and good and confident. And that's really how the story came about, was just me wanting to make rest an adventure. I love that idea of rest as an adventure, because obviously that's something we could all use. I need more rest as an adventure. (laughs) (laughs) And we do live in a very go, go, go society. Um, And, you know, this is also, so you're hitting a lot of like, you know, you're hitting a lot of like, sweet spots for me with this. I mean, obviously she's a black female heroine. Um, She's out with her friends. It's a back to school narrative. I mean, I just, I love so much about this. And I actually did also love that essay chairs in your first book, the pretty one, Um, which, you know, there's so much, your story is so interesting. You, um, you're a twin. 
Yes. Right. So there's that, <laughs> which already in itself, that's a very unique experience. Um, and yet you and your sister are having very difficult, different physical experiences in the world. You have cerebral palsy. She does not. Yes. Um, and so you really chronicled this through a series of essays in your first book, The Pretty One, um, what that kind of coming into yourself like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about let's let's backtrack a couple of years and, and talk okay. about the writing of that book and, and really putting that together, like, you know, especially in the format that you did, because it's not linear. This is not, you know, a typical memoir. This is essay. Yeah, I jump about, around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which I think has gotten, you know, that's gotten a little more popular in recent years. But, you know, in terms of kind of patchworking your life together to explain your experience, mm-hmm. what was that like? Like what, what kind of uh, drove that 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 uh, book? I mean, it was really just excitement to tell longer stories. So I had mm. been writing professionally since 2016, like 2015, really. And there was a lot of things in one-off articles or essays that I didn't have the room to talk about. And so I really treated The Pretty One like an opportunity to talk about things like music and family and love and platonic love and grief and loss and all these things. I treated it like a a way to say all of the things that I wanted to, but hadn't had the opportunity to. And with The Pretty One, I just wanted to talk about my relationship with my sister and how for a very long time I was jealous of her and jealous of her body. And I was like led to believe by society that that was the body of value. And I really took that to heart because even though I had so much love for my family and friends, I wasn't seeing it on screen, you know? It wasn't being Mm -hmm. reflected back to me in a way that I felt was tangible or not biased. And so for so many years, I was just jealous of Leah and we had a really rocky relationship because of it. And then, you know, I went away to college. We grew up, you know, I started to miss her and realized that like, all these qualities that I have in my friends at school, Leah also has. And I was like missing out on them. I didn't take the time to figure out who she was because I, I just saw her as my enemy. And I think with The Pretty One, a lot of the things that I talk about outside of my sister, are like the things that you don't really get to talk about when you're a marginalized writer and people give you a beat. So they're mm-hmm. like, oh, your beat is the disability beat. So you can't talk about mm-hmm. music. You can't talk about x y and z thing and i was for the pretty one i was just like no i'm talking about all of it the importance of being emotional how it means like what it means to be loved by the people that love me what it means to care about pop culture and not see yourself like it was very important for me to say hey these are the things that matter to me and i hope you like them i hope it works out but if not i'm happy with the book that i created and so that's how i really viewed the pretty one is like a chance to stretch my muscle and show people what I could do. Well, you've done a lot. So, you know, this is, and I do think it's important that our audience know this, you know, because I do agree with you. I think, you know, and I I can only speak from even just being a black woman on a beat, you know, like this is what you write about, right? Um, But you have written so much. I mean, you know, what you accomplished in this, you know, I guess six or seven year span of time is incredible and enviable in its own right. So you might have been jealous of your sister, but I think there's a lot of writers who would be jealous of you and your output. And, you know, you've written for Teen Vogue, Glamour, Harper's Bazaar, and not 
not just about disability issues, right? Like, you know, you've written about friendship, you've written about fat phobia, you've written about all kinds of fashion, you know, all kinds of things. Um, you know, because this is a podcast about what it means to bring your identity to the page and, and particularly intersectional identities, mm-hmm. you know, whether that be the intersection of gender and race or gender, race and ability or gender, race, sexuality, ability, et cetera. Yeah. The list can go on and on, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are interacting with these editors, when you are pitching these stories, when you are, you know, how have you pushed them to see you more wholly and allow you to bring more of yourself to the page than just the disability narrative? Yeah, I mean, it was a journey. I think at first, like a lot of people, when you're breaking in and you're like, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, I just need to get my foot in the door. And so a lot of my earlier work didn't feel so much like me as I would have wanted it to. But I think after writing The Pretty One in particular, I just started to see, hey, like people care about who you are fully. And because you wrote this book and it's like, it did okay, you have the ability to be confident enough to say, hey, this doesn't sound like me. I don't like Mm -hmm. this word usage. Actually, this is, you know, a term we use in the Black community. This is the way we say it. It's not spelled wrong. So it's a lot of just finding confidence and having editors thankfully be open to me pushing back and being like, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't sound like me. I don't want to change this, you know, because very early in my career, I would say up until the book came out, actually, so 2019, I was like, oh, you know, yeah, that's fine. I'm okay with changing it. And 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 that's okay. And, and it's different when you have an ed- like a white editor versus like a person of color, because there are things that they don't understand. And so they'll change it and be like, this is good. And you'll just be like, uh, yeah, it's fine. But I think the further along I get in my career, the the easier it is to fully be myself on the page because I feel confident enough to say, hey, this isn't working or like, I want to keep this. Please allow me to keep this. If not, we're going to have to part ways. It's like being able to be in a place where I can say no Mm -hmm. has really helped me become myself on the page, like fully. I mean, I think that's valuable advice for all of us because I think I think we you know marginalized writers in particular we even well past the point of newness when we're novices you know I think all of us have that story I mean I certainly do I totally related to you saying you know a lot of my earlier work doesn't necessarily sound like me per se right it's not necessarily what I've written and I think you know we also know that we live in an era of hot takes you know I think you know, now we're getting a little, I think we're starting to get, thankfully, back more into opinion, calling them what they are, which is opinion pieces. But, yeah. you know, for a while there, it was very much about the hot take. Like that was, it was a hot take economy. And if you were trying to break in, and particularly if you were trying to break into black media, I think, you know, that that was what you were expected to do. Um, is there a piece that you've written that you kind of felt was like a watershed moment for you in terms of, I mean, obviously there was the book, but was there a specific article or poem or just kind of a moment that felt like, aha, I am speaking for myself? Absolutely. So um, a few years ago, via Medium, Roxanne Gay had Roxanne Gay magazine. And I wrote um, this essay called My Body on the Other Side of Hatred. And that Mm -hmm. was like, like I had been 
she had edited me. That was the first time. And I had just felt so seen and understood and taken care of. And she like pushed me to, to make it genuinely who I was. And that was my watershed moment. I forget mm-hmm. what year that came out, but I remember reading it and being like, that's me completely. Like there, there is just me on this page and not anybody else, not any, you know, marker I'm trying to hit that sounds like somebody that I admire or not, mm-hmm. you know, a piece of so-and-so. It was like, this really feels like a Kia Brown article, a Kia Brown essay, a Kia Brown original. <laughs> and that was my moment where I was like, I want this to be like it is all the time, no matter who the editor is. But I was so grateful for Roxanne for that reason, because it was really... I think life-changing. It really changed the way that I view my work and the way that I, you know, speak up for myself because it wasn't like I had to do the extra work of being like, I don't, I don't agree with you, but you know, like trying to soften the blow, quote unquote, Roxanne was just like, no, this is your, this is your piece. And, you know, if you have any thoughts or ideas, like that's, that's what this is. We're collaborating together. We're here to make Mm. the piece the best it can be. And it just shifted everything for me, I think. Well, shout out to Roxane Gay, who tremendous, yes. tremendous writer and educator and editor, as we see. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that story. I, I think that, I mean, that's kind of the dream. I love that story. All right, y'all stay tuned and we'll be back with more Writing Black. The Griot Star Stories with Tere, coming soon on The Griot's Black Podcast Network. And we're back with more Writing Black. Um, I also really love your stories. I mean, I just do. I think, you you know, you have such an empathetic voice. I think um, you're obviously incredibly observant. Um, and I, I just, I'm curious about how you would interpret the power of observation and how it has informed your writing. Well, one, thank you. That's very kind. I think the the thing that I always tell people is like, I'm a naturally nosy person, right? So that's why I got into journalism in the first place. I love talking to people and asking questions and figuring out what makes them who they are. And so I think for me, empathy sort of has to come with that because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And I try to do, especially if I'm working on like a profile or like, like any of the cover stories I've done or like any profile interviews, I'm trying to get to the root of who a person is, whether that's like them talking about their next movie or TV show or what have you. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to ask you who you're dating. I'm not going to ask you, you know, how you got into your Captain Marvel suit, any of that, because like, sure, I guess, but I just want to figure out who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think you can't show up to an assignment of any sort without having some sort of empathy even if it's like and I guess it's easier for me to say that because a lot of the journalistic work that I do is like pop culture related so it's not like hard news stuff or people doing some sorts of crimes so that must be like a harder element for them but I find that I do my best work when I actually care about the thing that I'm working on and caring about the thing that you're working on allows you to be more empathetic to the people that you're talking to that are involved with the thing that you're working on. So I try to look at it from that vantage point of like, if I care, it's going to read better 
And if I don't, then I need to pass it on to somebody who might care more than I do. I entirely agree. And, you know, I run the lifestyle section here at the GRIO and Mm -hmm. empathy is one of my, when I talk to people about how we try to report, empathy is one of my keywords that I always use. So I think, and, and, and empathy is really lacking. Um, Absolutely. These days. I mean, we obviously just went through an administration where we were, which was literally preached, preaching anti-empathy, which is. Absolutely. You know, all the time. All the time. For, like every day. Yeah. And I think we're, we're not going to even understand the implications of it for years to come, right. you know? Right. So many people just lost all sense of empathy mm-hmm. and like, you know, the ability to be like, hey, let me give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or at least consider what it's like to be in their shoes or consider yes. that there's another perspective other than my own. Um, yeah, it's it's been a really, observationally speaking, it's been a really interesting and in some ways tragic time to be alive. Um, Absolutely. Witnessing this and in many ways feeling really helpless. Um, but I want to talk about empathy as well from a language standpoint, because, you know, one of the things I think we have been confronted with in re- recent years, I hadn't seen this since I was probably, I don't know, in, in the 90s, you know, when I was like still, you know, in, in my teens, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, where we were really talking about language differently. And, you know, people love to vilify any kind of consciousness around language as being, you know, overly politically correct or blah, 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 mm. blah, blah. But really... It is empathetic language, right, to right. consider how your words might affect other people. I mean, very recently we had the whole um, thing with both Lizzo and Beyonce removing mm-hmm. a word that is considered an ableist slur. Yes. But a lot of people didn't recognize that way. And what I was really shocked by was actually kind of the pushback, you know, a- against it. Like, no, no, that's like, you know, we use it like it was so important to hold on to this thing, you know, like it was some sort of yeah. point of identity. And oddly enough, I saw a lot of it from black people. Like that was Me like I, and I was like so shocked because I was like, really? <laughs> like, you know, like, it was so, really, I, this I was is so like this is like, the sure. word you need to hold on to right now. And I'm not going right, to say the word, the hill? but yeah, this is the hill. Right. This is the hill that you are choosing to die on today. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean. You know, listen, growing up, I was I was going through that. Um, I so I have a brother who was born with Down syndrome. And so mm-hmm. the way that people would casually use like the R word, I would be like, yeah, no, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, you know, people, so like, can we wild. talk a little bit about like empathy of language and like what and especially as black people, you know, we, we I would think we of all people would be so empathetic to this. Um, right. You would think so. I mean. And I had written a piece about the Lizzo and Beyonce changing the their words for insider. And there was a lot of Black people upset before they even read it. They were like, why don't you ask this of white artists? And I was like, if you actually read the piece, I would say, one, I was right. glad that they changed it. And two, I felt like there's a there's a disparity in the way that white disabled people come after Black people in general, mm-hmm. whether you're in the community or out of it, which was the focus of my piece. But I did find it really interesting that I had upset so many Black people by saying, like, it was a good thing that they changed mm-hmm. it. Because like you said, good language is empathetic language. And it's not a word that I think says anything powerful about who we are as Black people. At all. And so to, to have that pushback and have people be so upset at the idea that they changed the word is is... 
I was just floored by it because I was like, this is really that big of a deal for you that you like you want to be able to say it in your everyday life. And I think it is really interesting to be a marginalized group like we are and to and to not realize the sort of irony. Right. I was like the irony of that. The (laughs) irony of it all. I was just like, okay, um, but the thing about language is that it's supposed to change as times change. It's not a it's not a static linear thing. It's supposed to change as we do. Mm-hmm. Why is that such a problem? And also it was just weird because it wasn't like every in my everyday life I'm around black people who say the word all the time. That too. You know? It, it was just a weird t- to be so angry about it and yeah. and to just not be like okay, well good, they changed the word. It was just like, you know, threads everywhere. Yeah. They were coming from black people. They were coming from white disabled people. Like, and I was like, okay, one, the the racism in the white disabled thread, whatever. Like, of course, I'm not surprised by it. But the the sort of vitriol that came from black people, I was like, this is really intense Mm -hmm. just for this word. You know, Mm -hmm. it felt like it felt almost like people were behaving like we were taking something from our own community by by merely speaking about it. Right. And this is a conversation we're usually having about other populations in terms of this level of fear of somehow being disenfranchised or displaced or regulated in your speech or or who and what you have to consider when you speak. I mean, that's what the whole, you know, CRT argument is about. Like, oh my gosh, how dare you ask us to consider this or to acknowledge this, you know? Right. Um, It is staggering. And I think, you know, this, this to me, um, and when we talk, I I guess, writer to writer, um, this to me is one of the big challenges, I think, that many writers, at least writers who are on the side of empathy, um, are facing right now in terms of just this kind of like, you know, even what you were just describing, this like myopia of like, no, you can't do it to me. And not understanding, you know, how this correlates to so many other things that are threatening right. you, right? How do you how do you interpret that? I mean, I think I just try my best to remember that people often operate from a place of fear. Yeah. And that because the things that I create, I do, I try to be as, you know, um, intersectional and as like aware as possible. So... I really work hard in all the writing that I do to make sure that I'm not saying something that is like inherently offensive or harmful because like just for a shock value sort Mm -hmm. of thing. Like I think for me, it's like if there is a word that I think might upset people that I can change, I will change it. Like I'm not I'm not a person who is usually very tied to a certain word unless it's like you know, a cultural thing. And I, and I have like a white editor being like, what does, what does that mean? Is that a real word? That's different. Right. But I think for me, so, so, so to have that mindset and then to also have people, you know, not do that mm-hmm. is, is, is the thing that I think about all the time when, when I'm thinking about language and whether it's like a long form thing, like a book, which I have more time on, which is really nice. Cause I think you can go through the editing process a few times and catch things you missed but with a but like with a one-off article or an essay, it's like you have to do the work of just being like, am I happy with this piece? 
am I okay mm-hmm. with whatever reaction comes of it? Then that's how I try to go about whatever it is that I create. Like, as long as I'm happy with it and I feel like I did, you know, the best I could in the time that I had allowed, then, you know, that's what I have to go with. Because I think sometimes when you think too much about, you know, your audience or who you're writing to or who might view it, then you sort of get lost and it doesn't become yours anymore. Yeah, you're anymore. right. I mean, we do a lot of self-editing, a lot of self-censorship um, when that happens. I mean, that said, we also live in a society right now where, you know, and probably forevermore, where so much of our feedback is social media, right? And, yes. you know, I mean, you came to prominence in many ways, even though you've already been in the space, you've been writing, um, you know, with the disabled but cute hashtag. Um and so there is this natural, it's like you're, you're, you're compelled to build this audience, right? This online yeah. audience of then, you know, basically inherent critics, most of whom are not showing their faces and therefore feel free to say whatever they right. want to you. They're hiding behind American flags. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Ford F-150 trucks. Or hiding know. behind whatever. I mean, you know, they, they're hiding behind, yeah. you know, pictures of celebrities, what, wherever, you know, and, and everybody has yeah. an opinion. Um, having kind of, you know, to a certain extent, gotten a toehold and, and even a mastery of social media in that way, is there a good way for us, for us as writers to interact with that, with those platforms? Is there, a, is there a, a healthy way for us to do that when we've basically considered our, you know, either constructed our own echo chambers or our own, you know, our own lion's yeah. den of, of critics? Right. I mean, I wish, I wish I had a perfect answer because I think to me, it's like when Disabled and Cute went viral in 2017, mm-hmm. like on Twitter, Twitter was still really easy and light and fun for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd pop on, you know, talk about my favorite TV show or movie, pop back mm-hmm. off, you know, pop back on, talk to my friends for a little bit, leave again, you know, and then it was just, it became very quickly, and I think it, it was even more once lockdown yeah. started. It was just people being angry yeah. for, like, about yeah. everything and and being, um, you know, downright rude because of whatever it was that was actually going on in their lives. And they were, like, masking or being angry at And people. it being an election year um, and, and I things think, being so contentious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, all, all of it, it yeah. really changed the way that we interact with each other online but I think before before that it was very easy to just go on you know post a thing hey I wrote this for the times or I wrote this for Harper's Bazaar like hope you read it and then you could ignore the person who's just like oh I hate this you suck you're a terrible Mm -hmm. writer without even reading Mm -hmm. it or the person who was just like they read the headline that they assumed you had written even though as you know or as a writer we don't really write the headlines often we we don't have a say in what they are either And so it was much easier to ignore. And then, you know, Trump got into office and, you know, COVID happened and we went on lockdown and people were just nasty for the sake of being nasty. And so often now what I do to curate my own sort of joy on the Internet is focus on my joy on the Internet. It's like if somebody has something constructive to say, like, like I'll read comments, but I don't take to heart anymore mm-hmm. if somebody's like, this sucks or it's terrible when it's clear that they haven't even read the article. Because sometimes you'll call people out. Like, I called this guy out. 
two weeks ago, I think he had read the Insider article about the Lizzo mm-hmm. and Beyonce thing that I had wrote, and he didn't read it. He just read the headline. And I was like, if you read the article, that answer of, to your right. question is in the first two lines. He's like, oh, I skimmed it. Then why are we here? Right. Why are we talking to each other right now? You know, and I think it's just like having the wherewithal to be like, this is constructive and this is just somebody angry to be angry because either they want what I what they think I have or they are just angry and want somebody to yell at. And, and I think for me, it's just allowing myself to feel joy mm-hmm. and to be excited about things is the way that I counteract all of it. Because I think for a while there, there was a time where I let the way that people said things to me on the internet steal my mm-hmm. joy. I wasn't, I didn't allow myself to be excited about things like a new book coming out or a TV show or movie that I was watching. I didn't allow myself to be excited about any professional or personal wins. And then, you know, we were like a year into the pandemic and I was like, no, they're not going to rob me of the ability to be excited. I'm a naturally excitable person. And I think to, to me, it's important to take back that joy from the people who I had let take it from me because they were saying nasty things under articles or yeah. just under random tweets. Like I'd be like, ooh, the sky is blue right. today. And they're like, what do you mean? It's not blue. It's cerulean. Like, I know that that's dramatic, but they would just find anything to be upset about. And I think for me, it's really important to create a space where people are supportive, but they can be, but I have people who can be honest with me, you know, call me out, call me in, and also be the kind of people that like celebrate me when I need them to. And like, I'll celebrate them. So I feel like I finally have back a community that feels like, you know, a community that I'd want to have mm-hmm. in my everyday physical life. Listen, social media takes curation, too. So on the subject of joy, who do you read that brings you joy? What 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 authors, mm. writers, screenwriters, et cetera? What brings so you joy? So many people. What writers? So obviously Roxanne. I mean, I will read anything that Roxanne I mean, writes. It's right. Just, it's true. Yeah. Like, let's be realistic. <laughs> Ashley C. Ford. Yeah is a fantastic writer. Yes, she is. I, I will read, I will drop whatever I'm doing and read Ashley. Um, Morgan Jerkins mm-hmm. is a fantastic mm-hmm. writer. She's doing, like, she does such, her her deep dive reporting is so good that sometimes I'm just like, I, I gasp when I read it. I'm like, girl, you were in your bag, okay? And and I think, like, for me, so, so, so those three writers I'm going to always read, like, now I'll stop whatever I'm doing and read. And then for screenwriters, like I love Jordan Peele's mm-hmm. work. I think that everything he does to some, for some reason, it's just like, it just works really well. He has, I think it's a like great timing, great, you know, the writing is great. I just think that like, whatever he decides to create, I'm going to give it a go. Because I think that he has a sort of like, his point of view is really unique and really special to me. And I think, that he's doing fantastic work. Gina Prince Bythewood, I will always, always watch her stuff. She's brilliant. Um, so there are a lot of people that I think, and I think it's a really nice time to be a person of color creating things. I agree. Because there's just so many of us doing 
really interesting things. And I think it's really nice when you find somebody for the first time and it's like people are like, oh, I already knew who that was and I knew what they were doing. But you have to remember that every time somebody's watching something that you do or reading something that you've written, that's, that could be their, the first thing. That, that could be their introduction mm-hmm. and it could change their lives. So it's not about who got somewhere first. It's about who is here now and who wants to keep going on that journey with you. So like every time I write something, I try to treat it like, okay, this is, if this was a person who was reading my work for the first time or watching something that I've done for the first time, what would they think? Like, what, what would I want them to get out of it? And so at the core of everything I do, I want to talk about the importance of joy and, and like really allowing yourself to try your best to move away from cynicism because I was very cynical for a very long time. And so now it's like my, you know, North Star is to just remember that joy exists and that not only that it exists, but that we're allowed to experience it. Well, I love that. And I love Sam Super Seats, which is for all kinds of kids, frankly. <laughs> yes. This is a great, great book. And it's really, you know, I love that it's a, it's a little more, um, I actually found it a little more like, literate if that I don't know if that's the right word right now but then your typical children's book so I really dug that um mm-hmm. you know this is a book that I would happily share with my nieces and nephew um and thank you is there anything we should know about that's coming up Kia um yeah so I'm I'm focused right now on Sam Super Seats mm-hmm. and hoping that it reaches as many people as possible because truly I'm so proud of it and Shereen Miller my illustrator she was brilliant and really brought my dreams to life but I also have I'm co-writing a musical I don't know when that will be but I'm really excited about it I have a young adult book coming out next spring so you know I'll be posting about that as soon as we have like more information there and I just I hope that you keep uh, the audience and you maybe (laughs) keep reading my work and um you know, there's going to be any updates on anything. I'm very online. All so right. KiaBrown.com, Kia underscore Maria on Instagram and Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a lot of uh, hopes and dreams. And I just, I think the fun thing about being a creative is that we can do, we can create across genre. And so like, I want my stamp on everything. Poetry, fiction, nonfiction, Film and TV, you know, I'm try- I'm jumping into that. I'm taking acting classes, right. which has been really fun. And just, I, I really, really like the idea of being excited to be alive and to create and to figure out what it is that I want to do next. And so I'm on that journey alongside everybody else. And, you know, when things come up, I'll be posting about them. But right now, like... My big thing is Sam supersedes and hoping that, you know, it can get to as many children who need it. And also just remember that rest is our right. That's right. Not just for children, but all of us. Rest is our right. Well, you know, that's why this comes on on Sundays. So people can rest, relax, listen to Writing Black and, and get an infusion yes. of joy from people like you. Kia Brown, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with thank me. Thank you. For Writing Black. I hope it won't be the last time. I always adore talking to you. And it thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Well, this is the time in our episode where I talk about books that I love and that I'm reading, you know, and I got to say, we talked about this briefly um, during our interview with Kia, but I cannot uh, say enough that you all should actually dig into her uh 
book of autobiographical essays, The Pretty One. I think that it, for me, uh, reading it, gave me so much insight, even into the, you know, my own biases, my own projections, um, and the really weird ways that we kind of interpret anything that feels different to us, as well as obviously Kia's really, really, really um, intense exploration of her own inner life, um, her own, you know, her incredible bubbly personality that you got on on the podcast is runs right through this book and you can't really walk away from it without feeling really like joyful and um, really like, you know, just uplifted. I, I, I really enjoyed the book. I think um, it tapped me into so much of what I love about pop culture. Uh, and she is a pop culture aficionado. So there's that. But also, yeah, really like how we all reckon with jealousy and comparison and uh, how, you know, as I say, comparison is the thief of joy. And this is a woman who has really tapped into her own joy. And I think that this book really shows you the trajectory of that journey. So The Pretty One by Kia Brown. Get it. Check it out. Enjoy it. And yeah, she's one to watch. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts. The Grio Black Podcast Network is here and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard.